0: Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Last week, when we began in this book of Revelation, we saw the first eight verses of the first chapter, and it was basically introductory. John introducing himself, and then John bringing an introduction both from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now John is going to explain to us the circumstances surrounding the writing of this book. And he begins by telling us that he was on an island that is called Patmos. Now, you and I hear that name, and it doesn't have much of an association for us, but in the ancient world, or at least in the Roman Empire, everybody would know what John was talking about. It would be as if I said to you, uh, I, David, was on the island that is called Alcatraz. And I wrote to you, and you, well, of course, you would know if somebody was on Alcatraz, not anymore, of course, because it's just a park, it's just a museum, but in the days in which it was a functioning prison, you knew that if somebody was on Alcatraz, they were a prisoner there. And that's why John was on the island of Patmos. That island was like an Alcatraz island in the Roman Empire. It was used as a prison island, and it functioned as a prison without walls. It was a barren, desolate island, rich in marble, and most of the prisoners were forced laborers in the marble quarries there. And why was John there? It says there that he was there for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, the almost universal opinion of commentators, both ancient and modern, is to say that John was there for the purpose uh, that he was being persecuted. It's vaguely possible that John was there as a missionary, that he deliberately went there to minister to the prisoners there and to bring the word of God, but that, that's not likely. It's more likely that the Roman government, in a time of persecution, focusing it against the leaders of the church, brought this last surviving apostle, an old man by now, perhaps in his 80s or 90s himself, and determined that we've got to do something to shut this guy up. Let's send him away to a barren, rocky, desolate island. If he wants to preach, let him preach to the marble quarries. If he wants to talk, he can't do much damage around a few prisoners. John says, oh, yeah? I'll take out a pen and I'll write what the Lord shows me to write. Isn't that marvelous? This whole book happened because the Roman government wanted to shut him up. You can't shut up the word of God, can you? You can't lock it up. You can't imprison it. You can't put it in a desolate place. You can't exile the word of God. It's going to go forth and it went forth under John. And so he's commanded to write here, verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. You get that picture, don't you? It's loud, it's clear, it calls you to attention. All of a sudden, John hears this loud voice, and he doesn't see the person yet. He sees it in the later chapters. At first, all he does is he hears a voice. Now listen to the voice, listen to the words of it as it speaks in verse 11, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. It doesn't just mean that he was walking in the Spirit as opposed to walking in the flesh. You know, you have that contrast given to us in book like the book of Galatians that says you can walk in the Spirit and walk in the flesh, but that's not the sense of this at all. John was in the spirit in the sense that he was in a particular state of spirit. He was carried beyond the normal sense into a state where God could reveal to him supernaturally the contents of this book. He was in a unique spiritual condition, and God was was going to speak to John in this particular spiritual condition that he was at. As he hears this voice, it echoes to him this loud voice, this voice that seeks with the power and the attention of a trumpet, and he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Now, since Jesus introduced himself with these titles in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, look there, if you will. Revelation 1, 8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, and from the context going before that, we know that's Jesus speaking. So John instantly realizes that it's Jesus. It's Jesus speaking to me, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. It's he who is speaking to me. And that's not all he says, not just who he is, but he gives John something to do. He says, write it, write it in a book. I think this is wonderful. Because friends, you're not obligated to write down or share with somebody else every spiritual experience that you have. This is a great mistake many Christians make. They receive a marvelous spiritual experience, and yet they share it in a manner that sort of makes them seem puffed up in front of other people. Look at my great experience. I come back, and I even used this example last week, but to me it's such a beautiful example of the Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians where he speaks of this amazing heavenly experience that he had, where he was carried up into the very heaven where God lives and had this amazing vision of of unspeakable things, he says, that that just the Lord showed him and ministered to him. Paul was so reluctant to share it that he didn't write anything about it for years and years. And then when he did, when he writes it almost out of compulsion, in the book of 2 Corinthians, he doesn't even directly say it was himself. He puts it in the third person as if it happened to somebody else. Today, the Christian bookstores, you can probably go down and find two dozen books on this guy's vision and this guy's vision and that guy's experience. And, And I think it's safe to say exactly what happened. Don't share it with anybody unless God tells you to. You've had an amazing, beautiful, powerful experience with the Lord. God bless you. It's wonderful. It's a gift from the Lord. Keep it to yourself unless God specifically tells you to share it with somebody else. I mean, what's it going to do? You share it with somebody else. First of all, it's going to make you seem so spiritual, right? Oh, yes. I'm the one who has the, the visions. I'm the one who has the experiences. The other thing it's going to do is it's going to make that other person feel like a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God, isn't it? I guess God doesn't love me as much as they love. he loves them. Look at all what he does for them. I'm not saying that there's never a place for sharing. Those, Of course there is. There is a place for John to share. But let's just say, let's err on the side of being reserved in this, right? We'll keep it to ourselves unless the Lord tells us different. And that's what he's telling John here. Look at here, verse 11. He says, What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, Asia here doesn't refer to China and and Korea and Japan. It refers to the Roman province of Asia, sometimes called Asia Minor or Asia the Less, meaning, you know, a, a portion of land that today we would call Turkey. And in that area of land, there's seven specific churches that John was instructed to write to. Now, what I think is fascinating about this is that these were not the only seven churches in in this area. Right in the middle of this area, for example, is the church at the city of Colossae. Now, we have the letter to the Colossians. There was a thriving Christian community in Colossae. Yet, John wasn't told to write a letter to that city. In other words, of all the different churches that there were in this area, God picked seven to write to. Why? Well, The most immediate answer is that there were issues in those seven churches which needed speaking to. There's probably also some other reasons, some deeper reasons. Some people have pointed to the idea that these churches, if you would to lay them out on a map, you could see that they're arranged in a roughly circular pattern. And some people have suggested that, you know, you make the rounds. You go, you know, kind of in a direction around a clockwise direction and address each one. Some people would suggest maybe they're, they're postal districts, you know, administrative centers, and so the word would go out through the region. But probably the best answer is that throughout the Bible, the number seven often represents completeness. Now, many people will say that the number seven is the number of God. Yes and no. The number of seven is often associated with divine things because God is a complete God. But if you're going to say that the number seven is the number of God... What are you going to do when we get to Revelation chapter 13 and chapter 12 when we see a beast rising up with seven heads? Those aren't God's heads on that beast. Actually, seven is a number of completeness, of fulfillment, seven days in a week. The idea of of, of being fulfilled, complete, finished. And so there's a sense in which by picking seven churches, God wants to emphasize the idea that he's speaking to the complete church to the whole church, to all the churches. One commentator writes, the churches of all time are comprehended in the seven. And I think that that's true. By the way, could I just raise kind of an interesting sidelight? I'll just throw this out, a little hand grenade I'll throw out there just to get some of you thinking along these lines. The Apostle Paul also wrote to seven churches. He wrote to the church of Rome, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi, and Thessalonica. Paul wrote to seven churches, and so did John. Well, he was supposed to write, but before he begins writing, he is going to meet up with Jesus. Look at it here, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. You can only imagine what went through John's mind as he turned. He heard this voice, and the voice was spectacular. The voice was amazing in its texture and its clarity. We're going to see that in the following verses. The voice was mighty. I'm going to suggest to you that the voice John heard in heaven did not sound like the voice of Jesus as it sounded on earth. And so he wouldn't have recognized that it was Jesus by the sound of the voice, but by the titles that Jesus took to himself in verse 11, he would say, Well, that's Jesus. So can you imagine the heart of John beating as he, it's gonna, I'm gonna see Jesus. I haven't seen Jesus for decades and decades. I knew him. I walked on this earth with him. I want to see Jesus. And he turns around. And what does he see first? He doesn't see Jesus first, does he? Look at it there in verse 12. He saw seven golden lampstands. That's kind of a letdown when you're expecting to see Jesus. You see, seven golden lampstands. Now, these are not candlesticks. These are not menorahs. They are freestanding oil lampstands. The lamps are set on these lampstands. Now, I want you to notice something here. Verse 12 tells us that there were seven separate lampstands. Now, this is an image that reminds us of the golden lampstand that stood in the tabernacle and in the temple, a, a menorah, a, a seven-branched candlestick, and in the tabernacle and in the temple, you wouldn't have put candles in there, but on, on each one would have been platforms on which you would have put little oil lamps, and so it was a lampstand, oil lamps on one structure, seven branches coming out. That's not what John's talking about. These are seven separate ones. In other words, he would have said a seven-branched lampstand in the singular instead of, as it says there in verse 12, seven golden lampstands. You get the idea here? The old covenant lampstand was one lampstand with seven lamps on it. Here in the new covenant, we see seven different lampstands. One commentator, Matthew Poole, says that in the Jewish tabernacle, there was on one golden candlestick, seven lamps to give light. But John here sees seven. God had one church or one body of the Jews, but many among the Gentiles. So it's seven separate lampstands. But here's something else glorious to remember, friends. The light doesn't come from the lampstand, does it? No. The light comes from the oil lamps themselves, not from the lampstand. All the lampstand does is put the light in a prominent place where it can be seen. It just makes the light more visible. Therefore, I think these lampstands, as we're going to find out in the following few verses, the lampstands are a beautiful picture of the church. We don't produce the light. We just simply display it. Lamp isn't the light itself. It is only the instrument of dispensing the light. And listen, that lampstand will never show forth the light unless it has oil and fire. Right? That's what you have to do. You have to get the oil there and the fire to you. And so the church doesn't have any grace, any glory in and of itself. It has to receive it all from Jesus, all from the Holy Spirit, the oil coming in and then the fire of the Spirit of God burning brightly in the church. That's the only way. The, the lampstand can work and work and work. It'll never, that lampstand is never going to ignite itself on fire. Bring the oil, bring the fire, and it can display and radiate the light out to a much, much broader prominence. So he saw the lampstands and look at it there in verse thirteen. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, Jesus is there in the midst of these lampstands as the Son of Man, a figure of glory that looks back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And why don't I read that to you? You can turn there with me if you like. Daniel chapter 7, one of the most important prophetic passages in the entire Bible, which speaks very powerfully of of Jesus in, in His glory. Daniel chapter 7, beginning here at verse 13, where it says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him what was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed." Did you see that figure in verse 13 where it calls this Messiah, this figure, this ruling king, one like the Son of Man? Well, that's exactly the figure that John's quoting here in verse 13, isn't it? He saw one like the Son of Man, this figure of glory, looking back to Daniel chapter 7. You know, you just read that phrase, Son of Man, and it sounds kind of like a humble title, doesn't it? Oh, he's just a a man of the earth, just a man among men. No, when you realize he's quoting Daniel chapter 7, that's not a humble title at all. It's a title of glory and honor and prestige. And look at the prestige of this one like the Son of Man in verse 13. He's clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Those are figures of status and prominence, dressed in gold with a garment that goes all the way down to the feet. If you're wearing a garment that goes all the way down to the feet, you're not ready for hard work, are you? Right, ladies? You don't put on that long dress that goes all the way down to your feet and then go out there and run a few laps around the track, do you? It just doesn't do that. And so this is a figure of prominence and status, but probably even more importantly, it's a picture of the priesthood. Because the high priest wore such a garment. The high priest wore a garment that went all the way down to the feet, clothed in that kind of glory and majesty. And the high priest also wore a band that went around his chest. But you know what I love about this? It's so fantastic. so fantastic. The band that the high priest wore around his chest had a few golden threads sewn into it. Exodus chapter 39 tells us that. A few golden threads. Jesus' band around his, it doesn't have a few golden threads. The whole thing is gold, isn't it? Then that showed the, the surpassing glory of Jesus Christ. So do you see the picture here? Here's Jesus in his his priestly glory as the high priest of heaven. And where is he standing? In the midst of the lampstands. Now, don't miss the connection here. The lampstands are a picture drawn from something that was in the tabernacle, something in the temple. When you walked in the tabernacle of old, it was a dark tent. There was no light coming in, coverings all over the place. The only source of light in the tabernacle was from the lampstand. And so those lamps had to be tended and and kept burning all the time. And every day, probably several times a day, the priests would go in there and tend to the lamps. They would have to inspect them does this lamp have enough oil? Does this lamp need its wick trimmed? Does this lamp have a buildup of soot that needs to be cleared away? Because they wanted to keep all seven lamps burning continually so that the light would be continually shining and there would always be this light and glory within the tabernacle. So do you see Jesus among the seven golden lampstands? There he is. He's inspecting them, isn't he? He's looking at them. Boy, here's this one. Here's this church. It needs a little more oil. Here's this church that the wick needs to be trimmed. Oh, look at over there at that church. There's a buildup of soot that needs to be cleared away. He's inspecting the lamps. He's seeing what they need. He's seeing what they need to burn bright and strong and clear before the Lord. And we'll see the results of that analysis beginning in the next chapter. But on now to verse 14. More about the description of Jesus himself. His head and his hair were white like wool and white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. His head and his hair were white like wool. Some of you older folks who are getting that white or that gray hair? You see, you're just getting to be like Jesus now, aren't you? <laughs> now, that's part of the picture there. You know, the association, it, it, it's very strange in our culture. We don't honor the old much in our culture, do we? The, the push is all in being young. The push is all in, in men acting like kids. You know, that, that's how it is. And I guess kids are never really encouraged to grow up. It hasn't always been like that. I mean, there was a time when when the older person was honored and esteemed, where it thought if you had a gray head, that meant you were a man of wisdom. You were a man to be honored. You were a man to be respected. So here you talk about honor and respect. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. It's not only that, though. It's not only a picture of the, the antiquity or the, the old or the eternal nature of Jesus, but it's also evidence of his glory. You have the picture of, of a shining out almost of whiteness and glory at his face, at his head. And then it says as well, his eyes were like a flame of fire. You know, fire is often associated with judgment in the scriptures. Jesus' eyes display the fire of searching, penetrating judgment. Then it says of his feet, verse 15, his feet were like fine brass. Fire is connected with judgment, and these feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. It speaks of someone who's been through the fires of judgment, has come forth with a refined purity. It speaks of Jesus going through the refiner's fire. But shouldn't we also say that brass is a strong metal? Matter of fact, it was the strongest metal known in the ancient world. So if you've got somebody with strong feet, it means they won't be moved. They're standing firm. He's not going anywhere. It's as if John were writing to a modern audience. He was saying he has uh, titanium feet. You know, nobody's pushing this one around. You cannot move him. And then it says, look at it. It's a beautiful description. Verse 15. His voice as the sound of many waters. This is what makes me believe that when John heard this voice, it wasn't the same sound of voice that he heard from Jesus as Jesus walked this earth. The sound of many waters, you know what that has the idea of? Of a mighty waterfall. Have you ever heard the noise of a mighty waterfall? It's awesome, isn't it? There's a lowness, there's a a rumble to it, there's a a frequency, a vibration to it, a a majesty, a glory to it. That was the sense, that was the tenor of the voice of Jesus as it went forth, as if it had the power and the majesty of a mighty waterfall. And what does he have, verse 16? He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Well, in his right hand are seven stars. What are these seven stars? Well, wait on it. He'll tell us in a few minutes. It's a beautiful thing about the book of Revelation. Many of the signs, many of the symbols, it, it interprets them for us. So we'll just hold on and be patient. We'll get to it before the end of the chapter. Look at it there. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. The Bible describes in its original ancient Greek language two different kinds of swords. Now, are you familiar with Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, which says, that the word of God is, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That refers to a tactical sword. You know, like the kind Errol Flynn would hold, you know, in sword fighting in a movie. Small, light, you know, you can whip it around, precise. The, the different Greek word used here is, is very different. This refers to a heavy, broadsword. This is the kind of sword that does some damage. This is the kind of sword that inflicts some serious hurt. This sword is used to kill people. And that's the sword Jesus has. Look at it there, verse 16. He had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now, the idea of it coming out of his mouth is not that Jesus carries a sword in his teeth. He's not like some (laughs) buccaneer, you know, coming around. No, the idea is that this sword is his word. His weapon is the word of God, just like us. Our weapon is the word of God, right? Well, so is his. And so there's, there's no, no escape from it. That is the, the sword, and it's a two-edged sword, right? Charles Spurgeon said, there's no handling this weapon without cutting yourself. It has no back to it. It's all edge. The word of Christ, somehow or another, is all edge. And that's how it is. It's sharp all over, isn't it? Sharp for good, but it cuts a lot, doesn't it? Both for good and for conviction. But I want you to see right here at the end of verse 16. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. The glory of Jesus is so great, so shining, that it's hard to even look upon him. Jesus has the same glory that he displayed in his transfiguration when it says that his face shone like the sun. His face was like the disk of the sun on the brightest summer's day, when there were no clouds to, to lessen the splendor of its rays. You know, sometimes when it's cloudy and overcast, you can look at the sun, can't you? I mean, it almost looks like the moon hanging up there. You know that it's bright, but it's obscured. But on a bright, clear, sunny day, you can't look into the sun. It's too bright for you. Friends, this is beautiful. Look at this here. Now, I'm going to get ahead here. Look at verse 20. It says, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, for right now, let's just satisfy with ourselves of saying, that the angels are representatives, or messengers, or leaders of these seven churches. So look at it there, in verse 16, it says he has in his right hand seven stars, right? That's what's in his right hand, seven leaders of the churches. That's what he has in his hand. And then what does he have in his face? A face shining like the sun. Now, how insignificant those stars appear compared to the shining of the sun. I mean, they're stars. There's seven of them. Wow, look at their stars. They're leaders of churches. Wow, isn't that marvelous? Not compared to the sun. Who can see the stars? Who can see 70,000 stars when the sun shines in its strength? You know, when the sun shines during the daytime, the stars are shining all the time, but you can't see them, can you? It's because the sun is shining in its strength. And then even uh, it is so sweet when the Lord himself is so present in a congregation that a preacher or the leaders, well, they don't shine at all. All you see is the glorious radiance of Jesus Christ shining forth. Oh, sure, the the stars are out there shining the best they can. No, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. (laughs) But friends, it's nothing compared to the glorious radiance of the sun itself. When you go to a place of worship, always try to see the Lord's face. That's been the hang-up for some of you, haven't it? You've been trying to live your Christian life reading by starlight. The stars are pretty to look at, aren't they? Oh, it's very nice. That's not enough light to walk by, is it? If you want to walk, if you want to live, if you want to go on forth, you need the light of the sun. So, so stop looking at the stars. Look at the sun. Let the sun shine down upon you. Maybe that's why some Christians are so pale, right? Not spending enough time in the, in the uh, rays of the sun, are they? they? need to get themselves a spiritual suntan by looking in the face of Jesus Christ. There you are, his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Look at John's reaction here, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. John was overwhelmed by this awesome vision. Now, This is amazing. This was an apostle who knew Jesus on this earth. And even the three years that John spent with Jesus on this earth did not really prepare him to see Jesus in his heavenly glory. At this moment, John knew what a miracle it was. Not that Jesus could display this glory. He knew what a miracle it was that Jesus could shield his glory during his days on this earth. There he is at his feet like a dead man. Friends, that's a blessed position, don't you think? I don't think we're ever so alive as when we're dead at the feet of Jesus. Who cares? As long as we're at the feet of Jesus, alive or dead, that's a good place to be. But Jesus, in his glorious ministry, look, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. First, Jesus comforted John with a compassionate touch. Now, I have a theory here, and Go out with me on this limb and you can see if it feels comfortable to you. I'm gonna suggest to you that this is the first thing that Jesus that John, I should say, recognized from Jesus. He didn't recognize him by his voice, he didn't recognize him by his appearance, but I bet when he felt that touch, he remembered what that felt like. He remembered what it was like to feel that touch from Jesus. And that's why Jesus put forth his right hand and he touched him and then he gave him a command. Don't be afraid. You don't need to be afraid, John. You're in the presence of me, your savior, Jesus Christ. He's the first and the last, the God of all eternity. He's the one who lives and was dead and is alive forevermore. And I love this last one in verse 18. He has the keys of Hades and death. Now, sometimes people like to make jokes or talk as if Satan is sort of the the master of hell. You know, there he is down in hell, and hell's like his headquarters, you know? And uh, he's planning out the strategy from there, you know? That's like his domain. Friends, Satan doesn't run hell. I got news for you, Jesus runs hell. He's got the keys, and he's not letting Satan borrow them, I'll tell you that. Maybe Satan's come up and asked Jesus, can I have the keys to hell? Jesus says, no way. You're not getting it. I'm the Lord over it. I'm the Lord over life and death. We can trust that that Jesus holds the keys of Hades and death, and we can trust that Jesus never lets the devil borrow. So here we go, another command to write, verse 19. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand. And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Now, notice here first in verse 19. Jesus gives John a command to write. And in this command to write, in verse 19, we have for us a very handy outline of the book of Revelation. He says, write these things, John, and first of all, write the things which you have seen. This means that Jesus wanted John to write the things that he had just seen in his vision of the glorious heavenly Jesus. Okay, John, so write those things. Okay, John says, I'll write the things that I have seen. Then he says, write the things which are. This means that Jesus wanted John to write about the things of his present day. The the things regarding the seven churches which are in Asia. Okay, so you got the, the things which, which ha, you have seen, the things which are, and then notice the third part in verse 19, it's right there, the things which will take place after this. John, write about the things which will take place after this. This means that Jesus wanted John to write about things that would happen after the things regarding the seven churches, the things of the last days. That begins the third section of the book of Revelation. And so the book of Revelation is arranged in this very handy three-part structure. The things which you have seen, that's Revelation chapter 1. The things which are is Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And then the things which will take place after this, Revelation chapter 4 through chapter 22. A very handy three-part outline for taking care of the book of Revelation here. Then in verse 20, Jesus gives John a beginning to understanding some of the things he's seeing. He very kindly interprets his own images. The stars in his hand represent the angels of the seven churches. Now, why would each church have its own angel? And why does Jesus hold these angels in his hand? Now, some people believe that these angels are the pastors of these seven churches, By the way, this is, I should say, the majority opinion among Bible scholars and interpreters. Most commentators believe that when it says the angels of the seven churches, it's referring to the pastors or the leaders of those seven churches. Now, why would they call them angels? It's not because pastors are angels, believe me. It's based on a literal understanding of the ancient Greek word translated uh, angel. That word literally means messenger. And certainly, if nothing else, pastors are messengers to churches. And so just based on that very simple, if you were to replace the word angel with messenger, write to the messengers of each churches. Okay, fine. Makes it very clear. Now, other people have thought that the, that the angels might be guardian angels over each congregation. And some suggested that the angels are not literal beings at all, but just sort of that they represent the prevailing spirit over each church. There are strengths and weaknesses to any of these interpretations, but let me say this this is what we know. That the angels of these seven churches certainly represent the representatives of the church, whether it's an angelic representative, Or a pastoral representative, it's a representative of the church. But if you have to say it's anything, I'd have to say it would have to be a human leader, a pastor. Why? Because of where they are. Look at it there, verse 20. They're in his right hand. Now, you usually don't hear of angels being spoken of in that way, do you? Usually it's it's people that are in the Lord's right hand. And these angels, these leaders, these pastors are in the right hand of Jesus. Can we remember something here? Over the next few weeks, we're going to see some pretty messed up churches among these seven churches. Even the problem churches are in his hand. Even the messed up ones. Maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you're messed up. You can still be in the hand of Jesus, right? You can still be there. Listen, I I don't know if he's got the whole world in his hand, but he's got the, the leaders of the churches in his hands. He's got the churches themselves in his hands, doesn't he? Even the messed up ones. Your life, even if it's not where it should be tonight, the Lord can draw you closer. The Lord can draw you nearer to where you should be. And so the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, the seven churches. Let's get into this letter to the first church. That's all we'll consider tonight. The letter to the church of Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Now, When we get into these letters to the seven churches, we should recognize that each one of these letters share a similar structure. They each of them have seven parts. Part one is an address to a particular congregation. Part two is an introduction of Jesus. Part three is a statement regarding the condition of the church. Part four is a verdict from Jesus regarding the condition of the church. Part five is a command from Jesus to the church. Part six is a general exhortation to all Christians. And then the final part, part seven, is a promise of reward. Now, in some of the letters, these are missing. In some of them, they're mixed up just a little bit. But where it varies from this pattern, there's a reason for it. So let's see how the letter to the church at Ephesus fits into this. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write... Now, again, it's addressed to the angel of the church of Ephesus. And as discussed before, this angel is probably the pastor of the church at Ephesus, or perhaps an angelic being who's looking in at the workings of this church. But in some way, this angel represents this church. But I want you to notice something. As you read this letter, you're going to notice that this letter isn't so much written to the representative. Let's say it's the pastor. It isn't so much written to the pastor as it is to that whole church. In other words, he's not just talking to the pastor, he's speaking to the whole church. He's giving the pastor a message to give to the whole church. So where is this church? It's in the city of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a famous city in the ancient world and it had an equally famous church. Any church where the apostle Paul ministered for three years is a famous church. Any church where uh, Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos all ministered together it was a famous church. Any church where Timothy, the, the, the right-hand man to uh, Paul, ministered for many years is a famous church. And by the way, any church where the apostle John himself ministered at is a famous church. The city of Ephesus had a very famous church. The city was large. It was strong. It was a center for uh, the immoral worship of the goddess Diana. It was a very important political and economic and religious center of the region. It's to this church that Jesus introduces himself in the second part of verse 1. And he says, these things says he. Now, look at how Jesus introduces himself. He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, the picture here emphasizes Jesus's authority in the church. Who holds the pastors? He does. Who is inspecting the lampstands as the priest would inspect them? It's Jesus. You get the picture here. Jesus is introducing himself in sort of a heavy way. I'm the guy with authority who's looking in on you. That's who I am. Check this out. This is what he says, verse 2, the facts of this church. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you've persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Well, you just stop right there and you say, oh, thank you, Lord. Oh, isn't this great? Jesus is here. He holds the churches in his hands. He's inspecting all the churches. He's there looking at all of them, seeing how brightly the flame is burning. And he says, listen, I know your works. I know how hard you've worked for me. I know how diligent you are in preserving the doctrinal purity of the church. I know this. Jesus knows what this church is doing right. They work hard for the Lord and they have a godly endurance. And then it says you cannot bear those who are evil. Paul warned the Ephesian church before he ended his ministry at Ephesus, and he warned them that savage wolves would come in after him. And so it appears that the uh, leaders of the church at Ephesus took this seriously. And they guarded the church against these attacks. He says, look at it there, in in verses 2 and 3, he says, You have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not, and you have found them liars. This is beautiful. You know, the the Ephesians just didn't take any guy coming along the pike who opened up the Bible and said, I'm teaching the Bible. Friends, do you understand that a man can stand behind a pulpit, open up the Bible, quote a few scriptures, and not be teaching the truth of the Bible? Sometimes a spell almost goes over the minds of Christians. A man gets behind the pulpit. Well, that must mean he's telling me the truth, right? Right. He opens up the Bible. Well, that must mean he's telling the truth. And then he quotes some scriptures. Well, that must mean he's telling the truth. Not necessarily. You can twist the scriptures. You can take them out of context. Or how about this one, the famous preacher's technique of just using a, 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 a verse of scripture as a, as a springboard or as a starting block. And then you run off as far as you can from it and just say whatever you want to say. And that's why it's so valuable to do exactly what we're doing right now. Let's just look at what the scriptures say. Let it explain itself to us. Now, the church today, like the Ephesian church then, must vigorously test those who claim to be messengers from God. Look at it here. It says in verse 2, you've tested those who say they're apostles and are not. Now, somebody comes and claims some authority, tries to take some authority in the church. You should test them. The the greater the evil, the more deceptive it's cloak. So look out for those who speak well of themselves like what Spurgeon said about this commendation to the Ephesian church. He said, this was grand of them. It showed a backbone of truth. I wish some of the churches of this age had a little of this holy decision about them. For nowadays, if a man be clever, he may preach the vilest lie that was ever vomited from the mouth of hell, and it'll go down with some. Well, if it was that way in the days of Spurgeon, how much more in our own day? And look at what they're doing right, verse 3. You've persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. It's glorious. It's beautiful. They're hard workers. You know, there's that lack in the church today, isn't there? People who will work hard and labor. When a man works for Jesus Christ, he should work with all his might. What, are you going to give the world more than you give Jesus? You're going to give yourself, you're going to give your fortune more than you give Jesus? the Ephesian church had it right. Hard workers, diligent in protecting the doctrinal purity of the church. They're flying high after verse 3. Remember those eyes of flaming fire? Jesus looks at the angel of the church of Ephesus square in the eye with those flaming eyes, and he says, verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. It's a very sobering word that begins, verse 4, nevertheless. It strikes me that sometime I should preach a sermon on the great neverthelesses of the Bible. Because you know what the word nevertheless means. It means, despite all that, that's a heavy thing to say. It's a heavy thing to say for me to compliment you and compliment you and compliment you, and then say, despite all that, this is what I have to say you know what I've done? I've essentially just, just wiped away all the compliments I've given you. I've said, listen, there's a lot to praise you for, but what I have to tell you right now that is not in your favor outweighs all of that. In spite of all of that, despite it all the good, there's something so bad that I have to address it and I have to begin by saying, nevertheless, nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Despite all the good in the Ephesian church, there's something seriously wrong. They have left, notice it, my friends, they have not lost, they've left their first love. There is a difference, isn't there? There's a big difference between leaving and losing. You can lose something quite like accident, quite by accident, I should say, right? You just just lose it. Whoops, I don't know where it went. I just lost it. That's not how you lose your first love. You don't lose it, you leave it. As well, when you lose something, you don't know where to find it, do you? But when you leave it, you know where to find it. He says you've left your first love. I think it's amazing to consider that even though they had left their first love, everything looked great on the outside. You ever thought what it would be like to attend a service at the church of Ephesus? Man, you'd love it. He'd say, this place rocks. This is a happening church. They're doing so much. Look at the bulletin. It's filled with activities. These people are working hard for the Lord. Wow, look at their outreach. Look at their dedication. Man, these are the hardest working people in the world. Wow, it's amazing. And you would have said, wow, they guard the truth. Man, that pastor gets behind the pulpit and he preaches it. And he tells them to watch out for error, And he tells them to watch out for, for deception. This is fantastic. At the same time, I I hope that any one of us visiting the church at Ephesus would have had a vague, uneasy feeling, probably hard to pin down, hard to put our finger on. But it wasn't hard for Jesus to see the problem, even though everything probably looked wonderful from the outside. The problem was serious. They had left their first love. And friends, without love, all is vain. Nevertheless, Jesus said, no wonder I should say, Jesus said, nevertheless, I have this against you. Charles Spurgeon said that a church has no reason for being a church when she has no love in her heart or when that love grows cold. Lose love, lose all. Now, when it says they left their first love, what love did they leave? Think about that. You know, as Christians, we're commanded to love God, right? But we're also commanded to love one another. Maybe they left their love for one another. Maybe they thought, well, we love God just fine. It's just we can't stand each other. Sometimes you find that in the church, don't you? Maybe that's the first love that they left. I would say probably both of them are mine. Because the two loves go together, right? You you can say that you love God, but you don't love his people. But you're not speaking the truth, there are you? The Apostle John told us all about that in the letter of 1 John. He said, if you say you love God, but you hate your brother, he had a very diplomatic way of putting it, John. He said, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. So I think it was probably both. I think they probably left their first love for the Lord, and they left their first love for one another. Now, I think we could see how they slipped into this. First of all, the Ephesian church was a working church, right? And sometimes a focus on working for Jesus will eclipse a love relationship with him, right? Sort of the difference between a Mary and a Martha, right? There's, there's Martha, hard at work, working, working, working. But there's Mary, she's just at the feet of Jesus, loving him. And sometimes, God bless the, the Marthas, we need people who will work, but every Martha should have some of Mary in her, and every Mary should have some of Martha You need to work and and be at the feet of Jesus. We can put what we do for Jesus before who we are in him. We can leave Jesus in the temple just as the parents of Jesus did. So you can see how it would happen for such a hard-working church, right? But you can also see how it would happen because the Ephesian church was such a doctrinally pure church. You know, sometimes a focus on doctrinal purity will make a congregational cold and suspicious, and intolerant of diversity. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, when love dies, orthodox doctrine becomes a corpse, a powerless formalism. Adhesion to the truth sours into bigotry when the sweetness and light of love to Jesus departs. You can see how that happens, right? Pretty soon we're all concerned. Yeah, to have got to have the right doctrine. You've got to have the right doctrine. And all I say it's almost like a, a little Nazi state there, isn't it? What, did you hear what sister so-and-so Did you hear a brother so-and-so What, did you hear that? Did you hear this? And then all of a sudden, it's like this, you know, oh, oh, oh. And all the love is wrenched out of the church. It says you've got to get back to that first love. There's a definite, sure difference in their relationship with Jesus. They left their first love. Things aren't as they used to be. Friends, l- let me say something very clear on this point. It isn't that we expect that we should have the exact same excitement we had when everything was brand new in the Christian life. That can be a massive guilt trip you can put on people. Well, are you excited about Jesus as you were when you you first met him? You think back to those days, and it was like everything was so amazing and new. I mean, it was just unbelievable. It was just a different world. Things are only new once. I mean, you can go to Disneyland time and time again and enjoy it every time, but there's only one time you go there for the first time, right? Or maybe a better illustration is, is the illustration of, of a relationship between a married couple. There's those heady days of the courtship where you're so in love and there's so much infatuation. It's just so beautiful. I mean, it's a wonderful, wonderful, it's almost like a mind-expanding experience. This is fantastic. Now, that changes over time. Hopefully, it doesn't change for the bad, but that love deepens. The experience changes, but it changes in a good way, in that it deepens. How many of you have looked at an elderly couple who have been married for decades and decades, and you know what, they're not like school kids, don't kid yourself, but there's a deepness to their love that you covet. That You say, oh, I hope we have that someday. You understand that, don't you? So when we talk about first love, we're not talking necessarily about the excitement that you knew in the first Christian life. No. That excitement can mature into a depth of love that makes it even better than that initial excitement. Now, friends, there's nothing wrong with that initial excitement. Or wanting it to remain or be restored. No, nothing wrong with that at all. And one of the things that that really annoys me in the Christian life it was when you find those Christians who feel obligated to throw a bucket of cold water on the excitement or the enthusiasm of new Christians. Oh, that really disturbs me. Here's somebody just so in love with Jesus, so on fire with the Lord, and some supposedly mature Christian comes along and says, well, that won't last long, brother. Oh. Well, the Lord deal with them, please. Please. Well, friends, there's nothing wrong with wanting that. No, nothing at all. Wanting it to be restored, wanting it to continue. But there's something greater than an excitement and love. There's a depth to it. So how do you get back? Look at it here, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The first step for restoration for the Ephesian church was for them to remember. They had to remember from where they had fallen. That means remembering where they used to be in their love for the Lord and for one another. You know, when the prodigal son was in the pig pen, the first step in restoration was remembering what life was like back in his father's house. He said, whoa, wait a minute. I remember what it was like back there. It's always the first step in getting back with where we should be with the Lord. So remember, and then do what? Then repent. That's not a command to feel sorry. Really, it's not a command to feel anything. It's a command to turn around, to go a different way. And what does it say? It says to do the first works. You see that there in verse 5? Isn't that beautiful? Well, what are the first works? Remember how you used to spend time in his word? Remember how you used to pray? Remember the joy you used to have with getting together with other Christians? Remember how excited you were about telling other people about Jesus? I think Satan has done a masterful job in creating a sense of general dissatisfaction with these first works. Christians will run after almost every new strange method or program for growth or stability. Our shortened attention spans make us easily bored, so to speak, with the truest excitement. Sometimes people are willing to do anything but the first works. Oh, I'll read that book by that psychologist. Oh, I'll go to this. I'll go to that. I'll go. Bro, why don't you just sit down and get with your Bible and seek the Lord and get on your knees and pray and worship him in the closet. And let the Lord put your heart on fire again. Well, no, but you know, I heard if I go to the seminar or I heard if I read this book or if I. Just get on your knees in the closet Do those first works again. If you don't, the Lord says he'll remove your lampstand from its place. Verse 6 mentions the deeds of the Nicolaitans. We'll talk more about that in coming weeks because they'll be mentioned again. Let's focus on the final verse here, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear which the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, is that you tonight? Do you have an ear you probably have two. That means you should doubly listen to what the Holy Spirit says. This letter was not only written to the church at Ephesus in the Apostle John's day. It was written to us and to all Christians throughout the centuries. And let us here, it says what the Spirit says to the churches. One of the temptations that we're going to have is that we, we want to pick one of these churches and say we're it both as individuals and as a congregation. And I'll tell you ahead of time, the one we want to be, it's Philadelphia. That's the one that's only praised. No criticism of the Church of Philadelphia. So, oh yeah, well, that's us. Yes, yes, Lord, we'll receive that. But friends, I want you to see that the Holy Spirit didn't say, he who has an ear to hear, let him pick one church and identify himself with that church. No, he said, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church as," which means It doesn't matter where your life is tonight. The Holy Spirit has something to say to you through the church at Ephesus. Something. Friends, let it speak to you. Hear what the Holy Spirit would say. And look at the promise of reward. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. To him who overcomes, you want to be an overcomer, don't you? We'll talk more about that in coming weeks, how to be an overcomer, what an overcomer does. But friends, look at the payoff, look at the reward. You get to eat from the tree of life. That takes us back to Eden, doesn't it? It takes us back to where? To paradise. You know, originally, the word paradise meant a garden of delight. Eventually, it came to mean the place where God lives. Where God lives, that's paradise. Draw close to him. He's waiting for you. Let that first love burn. Remember, repent, do the first works. Your life will be blessed by it. Father, we pray that you'd give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, we were amazed by this resplendent vision that John had of Jesus in his resurrected heavenly glory. And we know that that same glorified Jesus is is praying on our behalf right now, even as we pray. Jesus, as you pray for us, we ask you to pray that we would remember and repent and return to that first love. Doing the first works. Give us a godly passion and determination to do it. To give you honor and glory, we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.